This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, February 24th, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel plans to reduce Army manpower to its lowest level since before World War II. That may look like a dramatic shift, but much of that is to be expected. Technological innovation and winding down wars should save Americans money. Chris Preble, Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, comments. How much of what Secretary Hagel is proposing is something that should be expected? I think most of it should be expected given that given the budget realities uh, that we are still in a serious deficit situation, that the the budget – there are budget caps in place. Of course, they were relaxed modestly by the Ryan Murray compromise that was negotiated back in December. But th- there are still spending caps in place and and so the Pentagon had to do certain things to, to meet – to get under those caps. Uh, more generally, um, the war is the war in Iraq is over. The war in Afghanistan is drawing down, and there is very little enthusiasm on the part of the American people for additional wars, uh, appropriately because those kinds of wars that uh, we were planning to fight in the in the 2000s turned out to be um, very costly and unnecessary to U.S. security, and I would argue actually harmful to U.S. security by drawing us into other people's political disputes. Now, this is uh, from the, the New York Times story on the subject. Uh, These are from Pentagon officials speaking anonymously. One result, the officials argue, will be a military capable of defeating any adversary but too small for protracted foreign occupations. To which I and most Americans would say, good. Uh, That's slightly tongue-in-cheek, of course. Uh, what, What the Pentagon worries about, and I think with some justification, is that while they are going to have fewer assets, fewer people uh, to deploy around the world, there will still be the desire on the part of policymakers uh, on this side of the Potomac uh, to send that smaller force in lots and lots of places. So as with everything, we need we, – we have a potential means versus ends gap and my goal has always been since I've been here to focus on the ends. Uh, but the Pentagon by, by necessity and, and by tradition uh, is focused on the means. They, they can't really um, – Change, uh, or at least they're they're subject to to being um, to having the ends change with but without a lot of input from them. Now uh, the headline uh, that that is being thrown around is essentially that we would have the smallest military since before World War II. Isn't that to some extent also to be expected given? technological innovation and uh, the benefits of that? Exactly. We, we do lots of things with fewer people from farming to manufacturing to, uh, you know, uh, me doing things around the house that I used to rely on other people to do uh, because, I, because of technology and because of access to more things. Uh, again, on a more serious note, uh, the, the active duty army will probably come down about 450,000 450, troops or so, maybe a little bit less than that. Um, to put that in perspective, uh, the high point of the post 9/11 force was about 566,000, and the average in the late 1990s was about 480,000. So it's it's really coming more in line with where we were during the 1990s, and I think based on what we knew from that period and what we've learned since, uh, a force that large is more than sufficient for dealing with. 
uh, short notice contingencies, uh, and if if you know in the unlikely event that we needed more troops, we could raise them. I think that is highly unlikely. Uh, I also think that we're drawing down our permanent presence in Europe, and and part of that presence that was so much larger in the 1990s, because you will have fewer troops permanently stationed in Germany, especially in a few other European countries, that also would allow you to have a smaller active duty force total here at home. What are the uh, benefits that Americans should be able to point to when it comes to shrinking the military in this way? Well, the main thing is money uh, savings, is that, uh, you know, it the personnel costs are the largest uh, share and, and a rising share of the Pentagon's budget, and I think that's to be expected. We attract uh, very, very highly qualified, motivated people. We train them well. We want them to to take a career in the in the military, or at least to serve long enough to to actually use their skills that they that they receive during their training, uh, and that that force is unquestionably the best in the world. It costs money. It turns out that it's rather difficult politically to change the benefit packages for people who are already in service or who have since retired. Uh, but continue to you know to operate on the assumption that the benefits they were promised when they were on active duty will continue. And again, we can have a debate on whether or not that's a reasonable expectation given the circumstances. Uh, but because it is politically difficult to, as we say, bend the cost curve down, the only other way to save money is to have fewer people. You have fewer people; they tend to be, they will be well qualified, they will be well well trained, and they will be exceptionally motivated. That's that's all to the good. Uh, and in fact, you know, of course, the proposal that Ben Friedman and I put out several years ago did reduce end strength quite significantly. We did not uh, put specific proposals for reducing uh, spending on personnel and benefit on, on personnel benefits. If anything, we said well, you would have a even more elite, well compensated force than the slightly larger one that we were cutting into. This was in 2010, of course, when we published our. Uh, policy analysis, military uh, uh, budgetary savings from military restraint. Uh, when a soldier signs on the dotted line, there are costs that just go out for uh, decades. Can Correct. you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, you know, you there are. It's pretty well established over time that you can make certain assumptions about. When that soldier signs on the dotted line, how, what percentage of them will finish basic training, what percentage of them will finish their first enlistment, what percentage of them will re-enlist, et cetera, et cetera. And you can make certain um, judgments about how much money you have to set aside to pay their benefits if, in fact, they stay in the service through 20 years and are eligible for a full retirement. Um, of course, only a small percentage actually do reach that level, but but everyone who who participates, you know, it's it's a it's a math problem, basically a, a complicated one, uh, but but a math problem nonetheless. And um, and so I th I do think, while it is, is proven extremely difficult to change the benefit package for existing troops and for those who are retired, but who again entered the service with certain expectations, I do think it's politically possible to make. Uh, changes to new for for new enlistees so that they're essentially entering with a new set of expectations. What happens to the Navy under uh, Secretary Hagel's plan? Well, it appears that they're committed, at least in principle, to retaining eleven aircraft carriers. There was there was some talk about going down to ten, but but one of the aircraft carriers, George Washington, which is scheduled for kind of refueling and upfit, uh, refit, et cetera. Uh, that appears that they're still planning on it. In order to do that, 
they're talking about retiring about 11 cruisers or at least putting 11 cruisers in some sort of a um, kind of a, a down state, you know, not fully uh, ready state. I'm not entirely sure how that all plays out. Uh, I, I really want to see the details on that. Uh, you know, we are building new destroyers. The new destroyers arguably are uh, are as capable as the cruisers. The cruiser, of course, is one of the ships that I deployed on many years ago. They've changed over the years, but the but the basic structure is the same. Um, so I'd like to see that. The other thing there, uh, that I've heard a little bit about, but not enough, is of course there's a pre- there is pressure on the shipbuilding budget being exerted by the plan to build a new ballistic missile submarine, a nuclear missile submarine, uh, and they haven't sorted that out. I haven't seen in the early releases. Perhaps they're going to talk about this later today. Uh, I haven't seen what the plans are for accommodating that additional spending in the shipbuilding budget for the ballistic missile submarine. What is missing as far as you can tell? Well, there are certain assumptions in terms of the budget that they're going to have, and they're, again, they're, they're making some assumptions that they're going to shake out some additional money from Congress somehow, either through closing of tax loopholes, that is, increasing taxes, or, uh, again, you would expect that the pushback would be for finding cuts elsewhere in the domestic discretionary budget. The White House probably isn't going to sign on to that. Uh, so if we're continuing to confront this impasse between no more revenue and no more cuts elsewhere in the budget, uh, then it, it seems to me they're sort of whistling past the graveyard that they think they're going to find this money somehow. I, I don't know how that will, will play out. Um, it, you'd say, of course, the, the, the how, how's the saying go? The White House proposes and the Congress disposes the budget. Um, so if the Congress ultimately decides not to abide by the spending caps, it's on Congress, not on the White House and the Pentagon. Uh, but that seems a little cynical. Um, so I, I would have liked to have seen a budget that was that was more closely aligned with the current law. And if by some miracle they they find additional money or additional comp, you know, some sort of deal that frees up money, then they can budget for more. But it seems a little re- irresponsible um, to just assume that 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 additional money is going to be found somewhere. Chris Preble is Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. You can read more of his work about where to cut at the Pentagon and still defend the United States at Cato.org.